The Sunday Grill with Crane and Crane Insurance. To compare motor and home insurance quotes across multiple different insurers, see craneandcrane.ie. Well, I think at this stage, a good few people have probably settled into this new normal, save for the jokes about our outgrowing hair and chip nails and demanding children. But what are the effects of dealing with this if you have an anxiety-induced disorder during COVID-19? Fanula Morn is an entertainment writer for Evoke.ie and she's been sharing her experience of life with trichotillomania, a condition that has been accelerated as a result of the pandemic. Fanula is chatting to me on the Sunday Grill this morning about living with an anxiety-induced disorder during challenging times and these are incredibly challenging times for many people, Fanula. Lots of people saying that COVID-19 is the great equaliser but I think by now we know that that isn't true and it certainly isn't true for people who are suffering with anxiety in the first place. Absolutely. Um, I think hopefully now people have kind of settled in to knowing that we've all done as much as we can to get the worst of this hopefully behind us with no second waves mm. or anything else like mm-hmm. that coming but just the massive upending of everyone's normality, their schedules, their routines all of the little things we put in place to kind of keep our lives running for normal has definitely, I know, affected me and I'm sure loads of other people out there with just making any kind of conditions that you might have been managing quite well beforehand just sort of flare up a little bit again. So trichotillomania, or trick for short, is a hair pulling disorder. Um, For me, it's my eyelashes and eyebrows. I've had it since I was eight. I didn't know what it was called until I was 16 and then I didn't get any help for it until I was 22 properly. But there's still so little research done on it out there. Um, So hopefully there'll be some light bulb moments from any listening in to say who might mm. have it and not even know that they've had it for years but basically what it is is a little anxiety relief mechanism it's just the way some people's brains are wired and um, the pulling your hair out will actually kind of soothe any underlying stresses mm-hmm. or anything you have so sorry uh, what were you pulling out did you say your eyelashes and my eyebrows as well yeah and your eyebrows so from eight until 22 does that mean that you had very sparse or no eyebrows it would depend on the time. So if it was quite a kind of calm time in my life, so on holidays or anything like that, they'd come back and I'm very thankful that they still grow back. So I was kind of worried mm. for years, would they stop growing back? Would they just be gone? Thankfully, even up until now, I think it's 20 years almost that I've had the condition. They're still growing back like bilio every time they get a break. Um, but people have different triggers with the condition. So whatever different things that will cause you stress. For me, it's kind of writing that changed mm. over time. At the beginning, it was more indiscriminate. It was just remember when I was like eight years old, I'd be trying to get to sleep and I'd be quite worried and I'd just be pulling all of them out then um, and it would just be a very general thing whereas over the years the things that have been triggering it have kind of gotten more specific so now it's just what I'm and it's interesting to- it's interesting to hear you say that because I think a lot of parents are worried about anxiety in children so you're saying you were an anxious child were you yeah, so I think I would have been quite carefree maybe up until I was in and around eight. And then there would have mm. been three different little things that happened. My best friend moved away to France. My last grandparent had died and I had a teacher that was kind of picking on me as well. So I wasn't having a great time in school then either. So I don't know if it was any one of those things or the combination of all of them that kind of triggered this off. But it would have been from eight on then it kind of switched me into a little bit of a worrier. Um, and that would have been when this flared up then. Um, so there's okay. other ones in the group of BF4Bs. They're called body-focused repetitive behaviours is the group of conditions and they're all compulsion disorders and hair pulling's one, skin picking's another, nail biting, lip biting, um, wow. loads of different things like that. So there's lots so of things different that variations. Can be, and things that can be quite normal what people would perceive as normal, like nail biting. Yeah, so like if you're tweezing out a few eyebrows, stray ones here and there, that's not this at all. If you're pulling off a little hangnail, that's not this at all either. So it's a kind of thing where you're nearly doing it subconsciously. It's not something you have control over. It's something essentially you don't want to be doing, but you don't really have control over being able to stop Mm. it um, is what this would be. Do you remember that first time? I know you say you were lying in bed, but 
Can you even remember what you were worrying about? Not specifically the first time, but I do remember kind of just staying up late and then you kind of wake up the next day. If you could feel one longer than the other, that would have to go as well. There was nearly like a perfectionism drawn into it, which sounds like wrong because like obviously not having all your eyelashes and eyebrows doesn't make them look perfect anyway. But then if there is one like sticking out, or if there's one away from the clump of the other ones, kind of little obsessive things like that nearly started creeping in with it as well. Okay. And the only other person I've heard of with this is Sam Frere is from Towie and the Mummy Diaries. And she's been quite vocal about it in the last season. Um, she has no eyelashes as far as I know. And she's able to pinpoint exactly when it started, when her dad had left. When, again, around that same age that you're saying, around seven or eight. Yeah, I think that's when it does come on for most people. And I know a lot of people now luckily do grow out of it. Um, I'm still hoping I will eventually grow out of it. Almost 28 so now. How, and um, how is it for you now? Is it in fits and spurts? Like, um, go months without doing it absolutely yeah it's getting more controlled so when I was in second year of college I did CBT which was absolutely brilliant because mm. with anything like this especially when it's something that you don't really know about or you're kind of ashamed about like I did never want people to notice I didn't have eyelashes and eyebrows I remember back in school I think it was in third class and people were like what happened to your eyebrows I was making up little lies because the truth sounded so much mm. weirder to me to be like I pulled them all out and I didn't mean to and I can't stop um, so what would you tell people you I can't was, pencil in your eyebrows at eight or Nine. No, I would have looked a bit bizarre now going mm. into primary school with a full face of makeup, <laughs> like a little pageant mom. My mom would be horrified. Um, but no, so at the time I was just kind of saying things like, "Oh, I fell on a razor" and all these kind of things, which probably okay. cast horrid shadows on my parents' parenting ability. Thinking like, "How is she just falling on razors in the house? What is going on?" But just <laughs> saying the truth then sounded so much weirder. So there's almost this kind of shame element built into it that I didn't. I couldn't vocalize what it was because I didn't know what it was. I didn't hear the word trichotillomania until I was 16. And usually if you hear about a condition, then there'd be like a kind of direct route to treatment and everything else like that and getting it sorted. It wasn't totally like that with trichotillomania because it just wasn't researched enough yet then. But the CBT was brilliant because all of the shame that I'd built up around this and like all of the energy I'd put into trying to hide it from everyone for years, I was able to shed all of that to really challenge the perceptions I had about myself based off it um, and that it wasn't just this willpower thing or it wasn't me being weak or anything else like that or I wasn't weird for doing it it's just the way my brain was wired and these mm. things happen um, and I think that gave me a lot of kind of perspective and a lot of internal calm there that I wouldn't have had before because I think before I was really really scared of other people seeing it and what would they think of me then and blah 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 would they want to be my friend anymore um, and then after that I didn't really care and then it just gave me this lovely kind of realization that everyone has something mm. some little thing maybe not to that extent but there's some physical thing that everyone is like oh my god like oh this is the worst thing in the world and they try to hide that so I was kind of like okay this is my thing I'm, th I'm like so lucky it's only a little physical thing it's very um superficial for me at the moment now I'm not in a kind of place where it does cause me a lot of stress or anxiety so I think my main thing for anyone if they're going through maybe a flare-up of conditions and things that they had a better hold of before the pandemic would just be to go easy on yourself like whatever mm. way you get through through this is justified it's right whatever you need to do to get to the end of this um, and to just stay well is and are you having any flare-ups for the what are we in now 10 weeks how did you find so I what was it March 12th yeah, it would have been kind of a slowly creeping thing for me because everyone who has trichotillomania will have different triggers that will set them off and different kind of places that they'd want to be very aware um, of their condition. So CBT will kind of teach you to be 
like to pick out those triggers and to be really aware of them and kind of to work back from the pulling to how to not get there again and to watch out for all of those kind of things and put barriers in place so you can't do it. So usually my trigger would be when I'm writing at home alone. I'm a journalist working from home in the pandemic. Mm. So as you can imagine, that has not been ideal. Um, But usually I'd have lovely big long nails on. Obviously they're gone at the moment because the salons are gone. So I don't have mm-hmm. those to kind of keep me away from my face. I still put the full face of makeup on every day. Um, but do just- you? Yeah, well, just to kind of keep me away. So any sort of barriers I can put between myself and my eyes that would like make me realize, okay, okay I've been so mascara or something like exactly. that. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So anything that puts a barrier there that will make me be like, oh, okay. So even if you had glasses on, like sunglasses, whatever mm. else, anything that would give you that just the little second you need to realize you're about to pull again to sort of stop yourself and go, okay, no, we don't want to do that now. Um, because initially the stress relief and the anxiety relief pulling gives people who have this condition that gets outweighed in the end by the stress that not having your eyelashes and eyebrows have mm. so I'm at the point now where like obviously I'd much rather have my eyelashes than whatever little bit of relief my brain gets from pulling the initial hair so my goal now would be to not pull at all obviously that hasn't gone too well during all of this I came back from New York with lovely eyelashes and eyebrows just after my holidays and that was just about two days before Leo shut the country down so okay. had we been in normal circumstances having my nails on been working in the office with all the girls and um, probably would have been able to keep them for a good long while um because the more you have then as well the more motivated you are to keep them so it's just easier that way how long has been the longest you've gone without pulling oh god I couldn't tell you I don't actually know I know um, like are we talking years or months or wouldn't weeks? be years no it's been quite okay. prevalent um but it would there would be months I suppose at a time when I've kind of really knuckled down like done all the paperwork that the CBT people give you to say like okay this was the emotion that you're feeling and that's why you pulled there blah blah, blah. like it's a lot of paperwork involved in keeping on top of the CBT mm. things if you want to kind of keep it at bay and um, before you've co- sort of broken away from it um so I think at different stages of my life probably it will be more and less prevalent um at the moment obviously it's quite um uh, obvious um with almost no eyelashes and eyebrows and stuff but I think they'll grow back again because it's coming into the summer I think the most stressful bit of this has gone past it's kind of getting mm. more social again we can get out to see friends and different things like that um from a distance of course so I think the worst part of this is over so hopefully now um with a mm. nice little holiday during the summer even if it's only locally or even if it's in the back garden um hopefully they'll come back again then yeah and I think you are an example who's someone who is going easy on themselves. I think that we are all really guilty of saying, you know, we're going through a pandemic. Don't be hard on yourself. But that's really difficult to do anyway. Absolutely. And I think there was a lot of talk at the start of being like, oh, this is the time to like get the best shape you've ever been in your life or like start up that business idea. And I think, no, this is a very stressful situation for loads of people. Just let people get through it however they want to get through it. There is no productivity pressure competition here that everyone needs to be in. Just do what you need to do. Enjoy the little break in life. Enjoy the little pause if you're getting one and just take some time to yourself and watch your inner speak and make sure that it's not highly, highly critical. Yes, very true. Well, you are writing about this for Evoke and um, you can check out Fanula's uh, writings on evoke.ie. Thanks so much for talking to us this morning. You're very honest about what you've been going through for decades at this stage. And is it a stage where you'd like to say you don't have this condition anymore? I would love for that to happen. And I do think it'd be realistic for me down the line. Um, 
maybe not while I'm in journalism I don't know if writing mm. remains my trigger and um, we'll see how we go there but I do see myself being able to get a handle of it now um in the coming months hopefully so we'll see how we go but as I said have kind of made peace with it and um, if that doesn't happen I don't see it as a defining piece of who I am now it's just a little thing that I have that's part of a like whole fuller lovely life as well Lovely. Well, Fanula, it was lovely to talk to you. And again, you can check out all your writings on evoke.ie. That is Fanula Morn. Thank you. The Sunday Grill on Beat 102-103. Been one of those monumental weeks for Daisy Drohan. The sixth year and head girl at the Ursuline Secondary School graduated along with her classmates this week under very unusual circumstances. To tell us more about it, Daisy's on the phone this morning. Hi, Daisy. Hi, how are things? Great, Thanks great. for having me. A free woman from school. How does that feel? I know. It's a bizarre feeling. Um, very bittersweet, but really, really good feeling at the same time. I remember like finishing off my own school a long time ago. Like it still brings back such memories, the songs that were on at the time. Just a mm. real feeling of that I'd grown up with these people and that we're moving on to a next chapter. But I got to be with those people. What, what was it like for you? Very bittersweet, but it was always going to be, I feel. Um, I do feel like there is still kind of a real community atmosphere and like there's been so many Zoom calls and, you know, even online ceremonies or class calls and, you know, there is still that kind of union there and that kind of group atmosphere there that we're all there with each other, you know, Mm. even though we can't physically be there. And, and is I there anything that sticks out in your mind from all those calls? Anything in particular that you'll always remember? Um, I think I'll always remember, especially kind of how much our school has done for us. Um, our principal, uh, Miss McGlynn, has texted us a few times, kind of thanking us for the past six years. And I know that she's doing the best that she can to kind of make sure that we can have a physical ceremony at some stage down the line. Um, and we've been... I, my tutor class did a call uh, a few days ago, actually, just or- organised by the students. And, you know, we had a little quiz and we shared some of our favourite memories over the past six years and some of the best classes we've had together and stuff like that. And it kind of, it's moments like that that really do stick in your mind and kind of really do show how close you grow with these people over six years, you know? Yeah, of course. And you were head girl of sixth year and I was. your Ursuline. <laughs> What did that mean over the last 10 weeks? Did, did, did you still have a role, did you feel? Um, not as strongly as I would have um, in the past because obviously as a girl I would have done graduation speech and kind of been involved in the preparations for graduation. Um, but I was contacted by the school and kind of, you know, there was a bit of liaising going on there with checking up on students and making sure that everyone still felt contacted and felt kind of a part of the loop. Um and even just sending in messages, making sure everyone was okay. And, you know, there was still that kind of, that role for me of, you know, talking to people and making sure that everyone was online. And, mm. and were most people online or everyone? Yeah, so we are really lucky that we work through Office 365 Teams um, where all of our students are were set up on it a, like six years ago, obviously. Oh, um, so we are, all have group chats. Obviously, there's always, of course, like Snapchat group chats and Zooms and all that kind of stuff as well. But we're really lucky that everyone was online and then that everyone had access to Internet and stuff. So we were really lucky in that regard that everyone was able to be kept in the loop. 
Yeah. And like as a sixth year, you've had so many ups and downs. It was you were doing the leaving cert. It was going to be on later. Now you're not doing it. It must have been a whole load of different emotions over the last 10 weeks. Oh, my gosh. It was an absolute roller coaster. I like can't even begin to explain. Um, there were some days where people would be absolutely upset or, you know, crying or whatever. And then other days where people were just kind of trying to get on with it and power through. But I think the the feeling for graduation in general was just relief and excitement for the future and a little bit of apprehension as to, you know, will we get our courses or whatever. But mm. that always that always happens at the stage of the year, you know, yeah, coming up to exams or even after exams. So it kind of there is still those feelings that would normally have been there. Um so I don't think it was too different in that regard. But And what are you hoping to do? What would you like to do in college or university? Uh, I'm looking towards English and art history um, with hopes to go into broadcasting someday um, or arts management. So, <laughs> it's, yeah, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, well, fingers crossed for you. And had you any Thank holidays you. or anything planned post the leaving search that have been dashed now? There was a six-year holiday to Prague um, that has since been cancelled. And I know a good few people in my year were hoping to go to Malia and there was a few of those kind of going on, but at the same time, it would be nice to have everyone around and once social distancing, kind of the different phases are brought through, we'll be able to see more and more people, which will be nice. And at least everyone will be in the same county, at least. Yeah, um, exactly. So we'll be able to see each other eventually, whatever. But yeah, just kind of trying to stay positive amidst all of our kind of cancelled plans. Exactly. <laughs> and look, in 20 years, when you look back on your leaving cert, no other year is going to be able to say that you got through it in a pandemic. So, listen, exactly. congratulations on graduating from sixth year in the Ursuline in Waterford and have a really lovely, lovely summer. It was lovely to talk to you this morning. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. The Sunday Grill on Beat 102-103. Well, my next guest is usually very busy this time of year booking kids around the southeast for summer camps. Not so much this year, of course, but Tim Slyche from Tiny Techs has come up with an innovative way to help children become more aware of tech as innovators and not just as consumers. And Tim is on the phone this morning to tell us more. You're very welcome to the Sunday Grill, Tim. Thank you very much for having me, Ola. Pleasure so, what is it? It's May 24th today. What do you, yes. Can you remember what you were doing this time last year with Tiny Techs? Because you're in schools, but you're also organising summer camps, usually. Yeah, a bit busy would have been the word I'd use. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, predominantly, I suppose, I've got two kind of, I've got three spokes to my wheel. Uh, I go into schools and do kind of curriculum time um, work during the actual school day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I do after-school clubs, you know, with schools that there's a, an additional interest. And then, as you say, around about this time of year, um, usually kind of sort of February, March onwards, I start thinking about, the summer camp situation. So yeah, busy would have been what, <laughs> what I would have been last year. But it's different. I mean, it's funny because I was in a school in Carlo when the news broke about the, you know, the kind of lockdown okay. and the, the, the closing of schools. Um, and so there was a lot of kind of, you know, putting, um, putting bags in, uh, sorry, forgive me, putting books in bags mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of how long is this going to last? Nobody really knew then. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a very different situation to as it is now because obviously, the news is that schools aren't back till September, so um, it's um, you know it's the best for us to stay in, but it's it's a unique situation for us all, particularly I like. It really myself. is. Now you've been working a lot online, of course, which a lot of us have been doing. But I suppose yeah. 
a lot of parents, myself included, are, are can be quite worried about children's screen time. Like my child is four and I'm actually quite surprised at how much she's embracing gaming at the moment. Barbie's yeah. dream house seems to be a big focus for her these days. Yeah. Do you find that with people that they either embrace technology or are quite wary about it when it comes to children, that it's all or nothing? Yeah, I think I think I'd, I'd say it's a definite split down a bit. I think as consumers, um, as, as parents, if you like, you know, as adults, we're all quite happy to fire up our own phones mm. and our tablets and you know, PlayStation, Netflix, or whatever. And then we we kind of look down at our little ones, you know, and kind of think, oh my goodness me, they're doing similar, you know. And then they, they always seem to be a step ahead. Yeah. And how <laughs> um, did that happen? I think they're they're learning. You know, we can't say, oh, we're picking up our phones and not expect them to think that's the norm as well. That's it. It's exactly what it is. I mean, mm. they're kind of mirroring our behaviours. And, um, I mean, I go into schools, uh, you know, I, I, I often take computers with me because one of the things when I set up Tiny Tech, I was very mindful of the school that doesn't have a lot, you know, and in fairness, mm. without being political about it, that could be that's more often the case, you know. So I'd take in screens with me and I'd take computers with me. And I've seen more than one example where children touch the screen and say, this ain't working. And I'm saying, what do you mean? They're like, well, it, you know, I'm touching it. Not, no, you have to turn it on underneath. You have to use the mouse, you know, kind of old skills. One might say they're old skills, wow. but, you know. Um, so I think what they're doing here, they're kind of looking at us using our, using our technology and kind of mirroring us. And obviously you'll say, because they're, they're, it's, it's so, it's, what do I say? It, doesn't wow, it does wow them, I suppose, but it's so as they grow up, it's been part of their life. They're natives. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, whereas I was, I'm kind of an 80s kid, I, you mm. know, very unashamedly an 80s kid. You know, I was very much wowed constantly. And I went to, I went to college and uh, went to university in the 90s and the internet was just breaking. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit of a wow. And our life seems to be forever wows. And now where it's, as you were just saying, you know, four years old, they're probably using it to learn and, you could ever, six weeks, ten weeks ago, we could ever have imagined, you know. Now, let's talk about these three summer camps that, of course, because of social distancing and everything that's happening, that you are running online. But there's you're set up three very different weeks within the summer for these summer camps. Tell us a little bit about yeah. them. Well, we got, uh, I'm, I'm doing, uh, yeah, three different weeks. Uh, one's looking, um, one's a little bit 50-50 at the moment, whether I'll run one of them, depending on numbers and whether I can get technology to, to children. But basically, one is uh, coding week and making games. Because, as we've alluded to, Riley, you know, children tend to be very into the games and rather than mm-hmm. just playing them, make them. And what I tend to do as well, as I've mentioned there before, you know, I'm, a, I'm a unashamedly an 80s kid. Um, I kind of get them to make things like Pong and um, and uh, Missile Command and okay. so on. Because what I do in the um, what I do in the game making, and very much so when I'm in the classroom, is I really try and push maths okay. into their learning. Um, so, you know, with things like Pong, obviously you've got balls moving around, you've got coordinate plotting, you've got ups and downs and lefts and rights, so, you know, X's and Y's, and you've got timers and you've got scores going up and timers going down. So mm. there's a lot in there of maths, even though they don't know they're using maths, which is the secret of it. <laughs> you know, they're kind of, they're learning as they go. Um, so that's the one week you've got that. Uh, the other week is an, an animation week. Uh, digital um, design and animation, Lovely. Uh, which is obviously quite topical because I'm Kilkenny based. Not native, as you can tell by my accent, but I'm Kil- Kilkenny based. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously we've got the cartoon saloon in town who tend to be off to the Oscars every every year. 
Um, so that's still using tech, but not necessarily in a you know in a game way. Okay. Um, and the third week is uh, Minecraft, make, playing Minecraft effectively, but using code to um, produce models and things. So Brilliant. I imagine I would. I wouldn't have to advertise Minecraft. I would say not. (laughs) (laughs) But we'd be writing code, Python code, um, to make houses, make bridges, make rainbows. Um, So, I mean, these are all things they could do by click the mouse, click, 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 click. Great. So you've thought of a way of teaching while also kids can enjoy things that they're already loving about uh, their screen yeah, time. Yeah. Yeah. Which is good teaching without, and I'm sure there's many, hopefully there's many teachers listening to kind of what teach, because I'm a teacher should have said really I suppose I'm a teacher you know I've been teaching since 2003 mm. in England uh, I came over to Ireland with my lovely Kilkenny wife in 2014 mm-hmm. so this isn't just a kind of a hobby or a passion but it's a vocation you know it's what I love doing sort of thing. Great. So that's great um, and I think with the math I often say to the children when I meet them you know the class and say who who likes computers yeah generally yeah who likes math oh yeah not so much right <laughs> you know and if you say well who plays Oh, yeah, I'll do that. Well, that's maths, adding out the balls that you're hitting and angles when you're taking shots. Who plays darts? Oh, I like darts. <laughs> well, that's maths, adding up the numbers and knowing what you've got to score to get, you know, beat mum and dad. Uh-huh. And they're like, oh, yeah, okay, maths is everywhere, actually. You know? <laughs> it's just because it's not just two numbers on the page adding it up. So you thought of everything. Brilliant. Well, look, trying to get to make it fun. Yeah, exactly. Which is the way to do it, especially for summer camps. And if people are interested, you're all over social media as you should be, or on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. If people want to t- search for Tiny Text, but also stick Ireland in there as well. If you want to yeah, find Tiny it properly. Yeah, Tiny Yeah, my Brilliant. my website's uh, tinytext.net. So I'm tinytext. Uh, dot ire at gmail dot com and any questions then uh, I'll be I'll be glad of the distraction at the moment I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> aren't we all brilliant Tim it was lovely to talk to you this morning and best Thank of luck you. with Thank those you. summer camps the Sunday Grill on Beat 102-103 My next guest is embracing the lack of hairdressers in her life and doing it for a good cause Sandra Power is from County Waterford and as she says herself she's currently looking like the love child of a badger crossed with a piebald pony but never the one to let growing out grey hair stand in her way Sandra is using the opportunity to show off those greys and raise vital funds for Domestic Violence Refuge Centre in the South East and Sandra's on the phone to tell us more Hiya Hi, Orla. You paint a lovely picture. (laughs) Now, I texted you about chatting to us and that's exactly the description that you gave yourself. Well, I mean, when I realised that my natural hair colour is now grey, that's that's one thing that's really after coming out of lockdown for me. (laughs) So, uh, you're a dark-haired woman, so you you dye your hair, do you? But you dye it your natural hair colour. I don't know what colour my natural one is now at this stage, or either. I I dye it whatever colour my hairdresser tells me they're going to dye it. I'm okay. I'm fairly easy going in that way. I go cover up those greys now, and we'll be all happy campers. So we're ten weeks in. When do you think you last were in the hairdressers? I can't remember. I reckon it must have been January or February because okay. it would have been kind of you know given the eight weeks before I go back and uh-huh. then. Like, oh, this is this is not ideal. 
But you have decided to embrace this and you're asking other women and men who are experiencing the same as you, like we all are, no visits to the hairdressers, no ability to colour our hair. You're asking us to share pictures of our hair now uh, with the hashtag ShareCare. Tell us a little bit about this. I sure will, yeah. So basically, Orla, you know, like everybody, and like you just said, we've all been stuck at home, not able to to do the gruig. But um, I suppose one thing that's been on my mind since the very start of this is that we keep on being told to stay at home and the line we were told is safe at home. Now, one of the main things to remember is that not everybody is safe at home. Um, you know, I people kept on saying to me, how are you getting on? How are you getting on? And I'm fine. You know, mm. right, it's not ideal, but I'm very, very lucky that I'm in my little bubble, that my home is a safe place. And when I close my front door, I'm, you know, I know that I'm happy and we're all here together and it's all good. Mm. But one thing that kept on you know, it's always in the back of my mind is that for people whose home is not a safe place, this must be a torturous time for them. Like, this must be so, so difficult. Because whereas before they used to have the respite of being able to go off and do a bit of shopping or going off to work or whatever, there are many people who are kind of stuck at home with their abusers. So when the roadmap came out and... You know, I had originally thinking, Jesus, it's going to be forever before I'm going to be able to get the hair done. It was also there, again, that same thought of somebody who is not in a safe environment in their home. Are they trapped for another month, two months? Do you know what I mean? Or indefinitely. Mm. And that's kind of what inspired the share care idea. And, you know, we have, we're, I'm already seeing things are getting a little bit easier, but it's not a massive difference. So for, for people who are from an abusive or controlling household, nothing really has changed. No, that's, and that's exactly it. And like I've spoken to Rebecca in Oasis House in Waterford because I wanted, I didn't just jump in and decide, ah, here, look, I'll raise a few bob. Mm. I, um, I really wanted to kind of see, I suppose, from their perspective, what's going on. And um, I spoke to, as I say, Rebecca in Oasis House and Lisa in Amber Refuge up in Kilkenny mm-hmm. just to get get a bit of an insight. And I suppose one thing to remember is that where they would have always had charity bags, donations of charity bags and things, which would go a long way if somebody has to leave their home mm-hmm. um, in, in a hurry and doesn't have anything other than, we'll say, the clothes they're standing in and maybe they have their children with, with them, same situation. They can't accept these charity bags now. So where cash flow would have gone on the important things that we wouldn't even think twice about buying when we're in the supermarket or when the hair or in the in the chemist, like sanitary products and underwear and things like that. These are things that are obviously very, very necessary in in these centres. God, I would but never have thought of those have, things. I, uh, and neither would I, to mm. be quite honest. Because I suppose we're privileged enough that we we don't have to think about that. Mm -hmm. So basically the premise then was that I would set up a GoFundMe for for domestic violence refuges in the southeast to try and give them an injection of cash directly. So this is money that won't get, you know, won't get filtered through admin or won't be, you know... Be, be spent on advertising or marketing or anything like that. This is purely to go directly to the people 
who need these these centres, who need these refuges in a, in a hurry, you know? Yeah. And, you know, we're all saving a little bit of money in some way by not heading to the hairdressers. So you're asking to maybe take a fiver from that and share your whatever way your hair is now for a, a, a bit of the full ele- the fun element but be able to donate to these refuge centres in the southeast. Is yeah. that right? Well, that's exactly it. Like I maintain that by the time we go back the majority of us will have missed two possibly even three visits to Definitely. the hairdressers. Yeah. You know so if we could just take even a fraction of that amount of, of even just one of your of your hairdressing appointments if it's a fiver, absolutely every little bit helps. But if you could pop that into the GoFundMe, and I'm keeping it all very, very transparent. I'm doing regular updates. I'm talking about it on Instagram and Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, that this can really, really help. And, you know, the, the I suppose it's just a little bit that, you know, of a way that we can help people who are in a much worse situation than we are. True. Um, you can check out your own hair and see whether people do think that you are the cross between a badger, a badger and a piebald <laughs> pony. I can't even picture that to tell you the truth, Sandra. But if you want to check out Sandra, she is on Instagram on Prosecco Powered Mum. If you search for her there, she's on Facebook too. But all the details for Share Care are there. Could I just yep. say as well, some amazing companies have gotten behind me. Um, in the campaign, Lloyd's in particular, Lloyd's hairdressers, Danielle has been amazing. But we've got a load of different companies after offering prizes as well. So if you make your donation and comment on the link, you're automatically in, um, entered into competitions for these uh, for these prizes. So there's some really, really lovely stuff, including an appointment in Lloyd's hair the very first week Whoa. that lockdown <laughs> reopened. <laughs> well, listen, you've really thought things through. Fair play to you. If you want to go on to Sandra's Instagram, as I said, it's Prosecco Powered Mum. Sandra, thanks a million for talking to me this morning. You're not tempted to go out and buy the Holly Willoughby or the Davina McCall hair dye and do it yourself. I have done my time with those box dyes and believe me I have had my disasters as well okay. so it, it hasn't come to that just yet you're going to leave it to the professionals that's, that's the plan but I, I'm i only one step away from sticking a bowl over the children's heads and cutting around them <laughs> that's a completely other story thanks a million for talking to me this morning Orla, thanks so much the Sunday Grill on Beat 102-103. Well, my next guest has been using his experience as a dialysis patient to create practical clothing for people using the same treatment. Dialyzed Clothing is the brainchild of Paddy Cox and his fiancée Rachel. Uh, the Castle Comerman is experiencing a second time on dialysis and he's on the phone to tell me about that experience and how he came to create a clothing line to help. Hiya Paddy, you're very welcome to the Sunday Grill. Hi, Arla. Thanks very much for having me. Now, as I said, your second time on dialysis. Uh, How come it's your second time? Um, Well, I was on dialysis when I was about 16. I had a good few illnesses growing up, which caused my kidneys to fail, uh, both of them. So I was on dialysis for about three years when I was 16. Um, Then I got a transplant, which lasted me up to about 12 years. So I'm very lucky that I did last that long. Mm. Um, And then... Sure, it obviously failed then after a length of time. Um, and I'm back on dialysis now for going on nearly three years at the moment again. So Okay, and waiting yeah. for another transplant. Yeah, yeah, waiting for another transplant. Unfortunately, now with uh, COVID-19, 
they're obviously they're all stopped at the moment. So um, yeah, it'll you know it'll happen one day, but it, it's a long it's a long road. And have you got close oh. in the last three years to it happening, or has it always been a waiting game? Um, no, my my sister was actually meant was uh, just to, ready to give me her kidney only I'd say a week or two before with the lockdown oh, hit. No. Uh, yeah, but what actually happened, you don't know all the tests, everything was actually, she was a perfect, perfect match, um, which they go by different stages. You can have a match, a, uh, a perfect match, and, you know, mm. and she was actually a perfect match, so uh, everything would have been, I would have got my whole life out of this kidney, but as it turned out, she only had uh, one herself. Oh, right. <laughs> so, so I mean, as luck would have it, she can't do it, yeah, yeah, okay. but, you know, she she done everything, so I couldn't ask for any more of from course, her. Of course, of course. You know? And dialysis is a long process. Like it's a number of hours a day that it's taking out of your life. It is. It, it's, you could say it actually takes up your life. Mm. And I don't mean to blow it up bigger than it is, but it's it's three days a week. Most people will do four hours. Um, you know, you can't take holidays. You can't take breaks. You can't bring in sick. You mm. have to do it. You know, mm. you, it's, it's the, the physical side is fine. You can do it, but it's the mental side. I think a lot of people struggle with and they don't talk about it much. Mm-hmm. Um, it is mentally, like, we had to cancel our wedding. Um, me and my fiancé, um, like, we couldn't get a mortgage because of it. And it, it does, it takes up. Your whole life comes to a, a stop. Yeah. You and know, I, I, and a lot, a lot of stuff that people don't talk about, unfortunately. And also what people don't talk about is the fact that it's it's not just that a machine is helping you process um, what you've ate and what your kidneys would normally do. Yeah. You actually have to be really careful with your diet. Really careful, yeah. Um, I think I got a scare now the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I went in the hospital a while ago. Um, well, they thought it was actually the coronavirus, but okay. it turned out to be sepsis in the end. Wow. But then after that, my I got home after about three weeks in the hospital and I treated myself to a, a meal. <laughs> it was like, a, you know, it wasn't a great meal. It was like a takeaway and stuff. Yeah. Uh, my potassium basically went to over 7.4. Um, so basically, over anything over 6 is considered heart attack mm-hmm. or cardiac arrest. So that was only from one meal that mm-hmm. I, I let myself go. And, yes, yeah, so, I mean, the renal diet is you have to stick to it. You okay. know, there's no ifs and buts. Because you feel better. Like, I've stuck to it, like, no tomorrow mm-hmm. after I came out, after I got the scare. And I've never felt as better, to be honest with you, you know. Okay. Now, you're a barber by trade, but you've also gone into the fashion business now, thanks to I your have. experience <laughs> on dialysis. Tell us what you've decided to do. Yeah, so um, obviously it came from say, this time around on dialysis. I noticed that none has changed in the way that people are um, going on the machines. They're still struggling, um, I suppose, with their lines, with their fishless, um, all the entry point, you know. Um, so that's where dialysis came from. And so we kind of went home sat down on a piece of paper and started working out templates for a, a clothing. And so we came up with these tops and like that, you know, we, we've done a few templates, but uh, they seem like they're working fantastic. And like I wear mine every time. It just made it so much easier and more comfortable. Um, like I notice a lot of older people, they're still, when you're going on the machine, you do expose yourself a little bit. Mm. And, you know, we kind of say, look, time to put an end to this and, and does that you know, mean that I, with the dialysis, the place where you're going, that there isn't much privacy then when you're on dialysis? There's not. There's okay. not. You you have, in most units, you'd have probably one or two isolation rooms. Um, that's where people are very sick. They'd get that. But um, I'd be probably two metres away from 
patient beside me and they're all open. It's all open plan. Okay. You, know, you can basically talk to six people in front of you and yeah, so there's not much privacy that way, okay. unfortunately. But obviously good to have people there that you can chat to if you're there for a number of hours. But as you said, if exactly. you didn't have the clothing that you've created, there's a chance that you might have to, what, take your top off at some stage or? Yes. See, the, the early stages of dialysis is you get a catheter. It basically goes through your neck, but mm-hmm. it's permanent. Mm. And then that's basically for the first six to eight months. Um, while you have a fistula in your arm, that actually takes a while for the veins to build up. Okay. Um. But it's like that. We have the zips that will go across the chest or you can just take out, pop out the, the catheter, um, hook onto the machine and off you go. So there's no taking off your top, having to pull down your vest or any of that kind of thing. Right. Um, and then for the fistula, which is actually a later stage, uh, a better stage of dialysis, was well, said it does take a while for them veins to build up. And so we have the inner arm um, hidden zips as well. So... You know, you don't have to be freezing there on the machine, having your hand go nice cold. Okay. Because um, the minute the minute the machine starts taking blood out, the first thing that happens to your arm, it goes kind of numb and okay. cold. And it's very it's very unsettling, mm. you know. Um, so that's where that, that comes in. And so we're just trying to make it th- everything easier for not even dialysis, but chemotherapy, uh, diabetics. Um, we've hidden pockets for insulin pumps. Okay. Um, uh, waterproof pockets. Them for urinary catheters, and I think we can really think of. And they're hoodies, um, or are you going to go down another range? Do you think? Now we we are doing medical. Our whole team is medical clothing, so we're kind of based at the moment. We do the half zips, the hoodies, um, backpacks for treatment. Um, the the backpacks actually made from scuba material, but it has a sporty kind of look about it. Mm. And the reason we went with that is to keep we want less bacteria as possible. Okay. Patients bringing in and out of clinics, be it chemotherapy, be it dialysis. So it's basically just keep as much bacteria away from them as possible. Okay. Um, and we are looking, we have done a lot of market research with, we'd say, the over 50s maybe. Mm-hmm. As a majority of these over 50s would have to get dialysis some stage in their life or, mm-hmm. you know. So, um, but yeah, we are looking at the minute. We have three or four on the way that we're doing templates with. So they're kind of cardigans, uh, just nice, woolly, you know, warm jumpers. And so, yeah, we, we are going to change a little bit on what our style of medical is, our whole sports medical team, um, just because we said we want to cater for all all ages mm. and all illnesses. Um, we recently launched our, our baby romper suit, okay. which is uh, basically for very early stage treatment for, you know, little fighters. Okay. <laughs> it was actually a guy we know, <clears throat> I won't mention names or anything, but his child had to get chemotherapy at... Um, I think he was about three months old. Okay, wow. And like that, he was pulling at the wires. So we designed this top around that child. And like that, for a family that's going through so much, the smallest thing like mm. that we gave him actually helped him a lot. And, yeah, so that's where we kind of took off from the baby romper suit as well. Okay, good um, stuff. So, we're, yeah, we're constantly thinking of other things to make. So, as I said, we, we're, our slogan is basically made by patients for our patients. So, um yeah, we take any feedback, you know. Just okay. want to dialyze clothing or you can find us on Facebook. I do love um, my own story on Facebook as well. 
Well, people can check you out, as you said, Paddy, on Dialyze yeah. Clothing. But that's where you can get your website as well, as dialyzeclothing.com. I'll let yeah. you go. I know you're on your way to dialysis. Yeah. Thank you so that's much it. for talking to me oh, this thank morning. Thank you, Thanks very and much. And stay thank safe. You. I presume you're one of those people who has to cocoon. So stay safe. And I, I hope am. everything's I okay. Am. My house has never been as clean in my life. So it's, <laughs> good it's fantastic. <laughs> Great. Well, it's good to hear that you're being productive while you're cocooning. Yeah, very productive. Yeah. <laughs> Time to get the paintbrush out. Thanks a million, yeah. Paddy. <laughs> Thanks, Arla. Thank you very much. <laughs> Bye. The Sunday Grill on Beat 102-103. My next guest's debut novel has been described as bracing, witty and whip-smart. Nisha Dolan is the author of Exciting Times, which follows the story of Ava, an overthinking 20-something teaching English to kids in Hong Kong. I'm in the middle of this and really, really enjoying it. And Nisha is on the phone to chat to us about it. How are you, Nisha? Hey, I'm very well, thanks. Good stuff. And where are you during the middle of these strange times? I'm in Dublin. Ah, great. Now, as I said, your book is called Exciting Times and tells the story of Ava. I'm calling her an overthinker. Would you call her an overthinker? I don't know, because she seems quite incompetent when she acts. So perhaps if she thought less, her actions would then be even less competent. So, um, requires a large degree of thinking. And Ava herself, was she the first person you knew she was going to be based in Hong Kong and, and what her life was about? Where, where did that all come from with your own experience or did it even? Well, I don't really write from experience mm. because fiction isn't a good way for me to mediate stuff that happens to me. It's a creative thing for me, really, which isn't to say that people who write about their own lives aren't creative, but that's not my view of it. But, mm. um, I, like, I actually find it really hard to narrativize after the fact where an idea came from, because things just change so much while you're writing them, and you're not thinking about how will I tell someone afterwards what the initial point was. So I always feel like I'm lying because I'm just pulling something out of nowhere when I say, oh, let's start with this. And I'm sure I have a million different versions of that out there in different interviews. So really the only relevant thing is is that you lived at one state in Hong Kong. Is that right? Yeah. Because um, you have to set something somewhere, don't you? Yeah, of course. Of course. So Ava is a 20-something Dubliner who moves to Hong Kong to teach English um, as a foreign language, which plenty of people do. Um, and then she meets a quite posh banker and a an Asian woman called Edith. Is that right? Yeah. Do you like Ava? I think I find it really difficult to assess whether I like first-person narrators because it's their internal monologue that you're hearing. True. So you have no way of knowing which of their actions they're emphasising or leaving out. So it feels fraught to even attempt to establish whether you like them because it's necessarily such a standard view of them. That's true. It's all very one-sided. So what has been the reaction to Exciting Times since it was published? Um, I mean, I guess good. Like, it's really <laughs> hard to gauge. <laughs> I don't know how much weight you're meant to attach to different things. I know. Because obviously there's a bias towards good feedback reaching me because very few people will actively try to tell me that they didn't like the book. It's something that people who are experienced with monitoring the reception of books in general will be more able to answer than me in a way. And of course you published your debut novel during lockdown, um, which we didn't see coming. Did th- did that change the way that you had to think about how you would promote the book or um, was it something that was finished and you could just leave to other people to do? Well, I'm very lucky that I have 
team who take care of that at my publishers in different countries. So they just tell me what to do and I do really. So um, I haven't had to be as proactive as maybe a self-published author would have to be. But I think the initial plans did involve more things like me appearing at festivals. So then instead of that, a lot of that stuff will be happening online or just pursuing different methods of promoting it, I suppose. And are you okay with that, doing most things online? Yeah, well, because I'm autistic, I actually find it a lot easier. It's like, mm. and I just find different environments, especially new ones, really overwhelming. So that was always going to be something that would be harder for me than for an autistic writer. So it's taking a little bit of the pressure off in that sense. Okay, yeah, that is a good point, actually. And then you, you don't have to do the, you know, sometimes you have to do the face-to-face, but you don't have to do the full-on 30 or 40 people looking at you in a room. Yeah, and with that sort of thing it's hard to express how that feels for me because I don't want to sound ungrateful when people are showing me a lot of warmth and support in ways that make sense to them but there isn't always that understanding of what that's what that's like for me so yeah it's nice to be able to process things in maybe a more private way. Yes of course do you feel you have to explain that then to tell people then that you are autistic and especially when you were thinking about going out on these tours? Yeah like go out of my way to say but mm. it's more if I say something about myself and I don't say it in light of my autism then people assume you're exaggerating or they try to draw parallels between that and their experiences where they're like oh I don't know the public speaking when it's not that at all. And I think you know when it comes to people who are authors or people who are on the public sphere in any sense we expect them don't we to act in a certain way we expect them to be charismatic and enjoy the you know, enjoy the audience talking back. And that's not always the case. Yeah, I mean, I I suppose I'm wary of assessing people based on things like their body language because mm. I just don't think it says anything of worth about who they are on or off the spectrum. Mm. And that's something that affects autistic people, but it's something that affects all sorts of people. And it's about culture as much as anything else. Different cultures are more or less expressive in different ways. So, for example, I find Hong Kong an easier place to live not because everyone's on the spectrum there, but because their cultural norms are just more direct. There's less of a tendency to obfuscate with your language and more of a tendency to just say what you mean more ah, bluntly, okay. which suits me extremely well. Yeah, and what we aren't great at in Ireland, really. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I think Ireland is in many ways kind of hard place for an autistic person, and then once you've done that, other places are completely easier. Especially since we're great ones for the sarcasm, I'd say that's not great. That doesn't help very much. Quite a sarcastic sense of humor, actually. <laughs> good, good. I think it just differs from person to person. Mm. I've never had any difficulties with understanding or enjoying sarcasm, and I find that stereotype a little bit frustrating sometimes because many of the funniest people I know are autistic. Okay, that is interesting. Have you plans for other work? Is this now what you think will be your career, or would you like to do other stuff? I'm under contract for the second novel and I have a draft of it written, but I'm currently working on a third novel because I don't feel like working on the second one right now. So we'll see which of those becomes the published second novel. But yeah, I find it the most enjoyable way to support myself so far if I found something else that I enjoyed more than I do. But for now, writing novels is pretty good. Good stuff. Well, congratulations on that debut, Exciting Times by Nisha Dolan. It's published by W and, and N and it is uh, out now. You can also catch up with Nisha on her Twitter. Her handle is Nisha Dolan. Nisha, it was lovely to talk to you and best of luck with everything. The Sunday Grill on Beat 102-103. Someone I'm totally ready for is Donal O'Donoghue from the Orti Guide. Wow, wow. Well, how are things with you this week? 
Fine, good, good, same, good. Same, yeah. same? Am I insane? Am I insane? No, is it the same, same? Oh, same, same, yeah. That is, am I insane? Yeah, well, I'm getting there. Yeah, it's the same, same old, same old, same all. Same, same posted stuck in the wall. Same job to do uh, on the yeah. wall. Yeah. Same room same, doing it in. Same room. Let's talk television. Television is doing me no favours at the moment. I can't find anything I like. I tried White Lines on Netflix with Angela Griffin. Rubbish. Mm, yeah. Um, I, what else have I tried? I tried. Have, a you, try, have you tried Unorthodox? Yeah, oh, on Netflix. Donald, I loved it. I watched yes. it in I one think, day. It's, it's amazing. It's from the team who did Deutschland 86 and, 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 and the second one as well. The same people who made that. It's, I think it's, it's based on a memoir from... Yes, Deborah Fieldman. Deb, Deb, yeah, exactly, memoir, yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, it's, it's really, really good. Uh, that's one on Netflix. Another one on Netflix is Space Force, which is mm. coming out this Friday on Netflix. It's a new Steve Carell comedy. Okay, yeah. so this starts off well then. Yeah, well, I've seen the first episode. It's okay. kind of, it's, it plays it straight. I'll tell you what, it's, first of all, it's co-created by Steve Carell and mm-hmm. Greg Daniels. Um, and the idea, just to give you a backstory, the idea comes from something that Donald Trump said in 2018 when he was wanted to create a new space force, which would be the, <laughs> the sort of the, not just for real, which would be the sort of the sixth wing of the U.S. armed forces. So, and that came to, into reality this year in 2020. You, have, okay. you now have a space force. <laughs> but these guys back in 2018, Greg Daniels, Steve Carell, Steve Carell initially heard this, that this could be great idea for a comedy or satire. So he and Greg Daniels, who would have um, the showrunner on the U.S. office, um, work together on this. Um, now, the funny thing is, I've seen he, uh, Steve Carell plays a four-star general and the first episode opens with him and he's looking forward to become the head of the Air Force and he's giving this new gig, Space Force. Not quite Air Force, but Space Force. Okay. So he and his family, his wife is played by Lisa Kudrow, they oh, zip great. off to sort of a remote part of Colorado where um, there's a space Space base, space force base is located. It's a bit James Bond, James Bondish. Is mm-hmm. kind of he presses a button in the middle of it and this kind of mountain open up and he goes down. Um, and um, and President Trump is never actually alluded to by name, but he is alluded to in certain ways because uh, the new job of this new head of space force played by Steve Carell, his job is to put uh, uh, boots on the moon. Uh, by a certain date, I think, and then they weren't, but they weren't sure because they weren't sure was it boots or boobs on the moon because <laughs> the president was a bit confusing on that matter. Um, and then you have a very interesting cast. I mean, apart from Lisa Kudrow, you also have um, John Malkovich who plays this kind of oh great, got to have him in John a long Malkovich time. is good. Yeah, John Malkovich is good in anything, um, and he plays this kind of strange kind of scientist who kind of pops up in uh, Steve Carell's um, office, like saying, "Oh, Brilliant. you can't do this, and you can't do that," and like you know, I'm going well. He, Goes, well, who gave you the authority? He says, oh, I'm, I'm above you in terms of this are hierarchy. You, are you comparing it to The Office? Because it sounds uh, a little bit kind of the Royal Telebounds kind of quirky. No, it's got a Royal Telebounds. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it, there are gags in there. I mean, I mean gags, but they're mm. all straight paid, played straight face, pole face. Okay. Uh, John Malkovich is always worth watching. Uh, and the cast is good. So I've only seen the first episode. And yeah, it's promising. Uh, it's a 10 part series. We will definitely uh, give that a go. That is called Space Force and it's out from Friday on Netflix. Then on Thursday we have the first team at 9.30 on BBC Two, another comedy, this time a six-parter from the creators of The Inbetweeners. Again, that is a good start for this. Yes. I'm not sure how how far we go beyond the good start. I mean, Ian Morris and Ian Damon Beasley created The Inbetweeners. I know you're a fan. I'm Mm -hmm. a fan. Actually, Mm -hmm. most people are a fan. It was just wacky uh, kind of comedy. Um, So this is basically, this is combining your other favourite thing, uh, uh, football. Oh, <laughs> I can see the, the waning me. levels of enthusiasm <laughs> dropping off the face, cliff face there. It follows three young footballers, Matty, Jack, and Bingy, and uh, and their adventures with a terrifying team hardman and the mercurial manager, team manager, and the eccentric chairman. And I imagine the, there'll have to be sort of elements of sort of the schoolboy kind of humour and the kind of um, you know 
in, in this, obviously, okay. uh, with the three young lads. Um, yeah, and a bit I'm not of sure that, how much of a fan of football humor. you'd have to be. No, I, I can't imagine. You know the humour from the in-betweeners where you're like, yes. oh, I can't believe they got him to do that. Are they, got, are they, got, are they actually said that? Or, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Or actually, sometimes there's actual visual stuff they do. Go, yes. I can imagine, I, I can only imagine what the locker rooms or whatever in a, in a football thing are like. So I'm sure that gives them lots of... Um, context and room for manoeuvre in terms of you know we watched the Inbetweeners movie on all four there a few weeks ago mm. and it really has aged you know there's a lot of jokes in there that don't really work nowadays no mm, so we'll see we'll see if this works too that is called the first team the first team 9.30pm on BBC2 on Thursday now let's talk McMillions I've seen an episode of this it's newly launched Sky documentary so if you have Sky you should have this channel uh, from friend, from fr- Wednesday I mean if anybody who thinks about like you know, the, these lottery tickets or whatever like oh yeah you know this conspiracy theory is going mm. oh yeah there's a scam I mean you know those whatever the, the, the winning streak or whatever like you know there, there, there's, a, there's a magnet or whatever you know this theory this actually is an actual uh, scam that actually happened um um it's it's actually by the way actually Sky Documentaries is launching from this Wednesday actually the okay. whole a channel devoted exclusively to uh, to documentaries in right. fact um, and it starts Macmillan's is sort of the centerpiece is the flagship first for Sky okay. on this but they also have one on, on Chernobyl which is on immediately before Macmillan's oh, which okay. is a, yeah which probably might be more interesting to you but I think Macmillan's Macmillan's is on at nine o'clock on Wednesday and it's right. a double episode at nine o'clock and ten o five um, so anyway basically it's a story about a six part series and it's a strange and fiction story of an ex cop who turns turned security auditor. His name is Uncle Jerry. Uh, you've seen a bit of it, obviously. Yeah. So he's rigged this kind of McDonald's Monopoly game promotion for a decade. So he managed, through that, stealing millions of dollars and building a vast network of uh, co-conspirators right across the US. So you have archive footage from the FBI agents who, who managed to br- eventually bring down the gaming scam. Mm-hmm. Then you also uh, Mac- uh, interviews the McDonald's corporate executives and also the culprits and prize winners who profited hugely from this, this complicated scam scheme. Um, I haven't seen it. I heard good things about it. You've seen one. I'm, I'm I've not seen sure. One I mean, and I in the really US already. Went, I never really went looking for it again. Second, okay, truth. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. There is a very particular flamboyant FBI agent in it who is just brilliant. He kind of makes it the way he tells his stories. So okay, this is a real life FBI. It, a real life yeah. FBI agent, and yeah. the way that they set up the sting was they pretended to be filming all the winners, so they've loads of archive oh, footage. Oh, that's intriguing yeah. itself. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's exec producer Mark Wahlberg as well. Who okay. he's the money behind it? Yeah. Um, Good stuff. Different. All right. Yeah. And doesn't he have a burger chain anyway? He, he's a businessman. He's very. Uh, I think he businessman. owns a burger chain with yeah, his brothers. Yeah, him, his brother, I think actually. Yeah. And there's a documentary on it as well, or some yes, series on it. There you go. He obviously <laughs> so he, loves he his burgers. A burger chain, and then he make a TV series about <laughs> it. <laughs> okay. See how his mind works. Okay, mm, that is Mac from... or Mac Millions. <laughs> I see, see the connections here now. Six degrees of whatever. <laughs> Mac Millions Wednesday Sky Documentaries, which is launching on Wednesday as well, as well at nine p.m. Uh, then the next day we have the first team 9.30 on BBC2 which is a comedy and then another Steve Carell comedy is on from Friday on Netflix it is called Space Force Donal as usual thanks a million thanks sir The Sunday Grill with Crane and Crane Insurance to compare motor and home insurance quotes across multiple different insurers see craneandcrane.ie